Welcome to Multimillionaire Secrets in 30 Minutes. It's your host, Josh Golder. I am sitting here in my man cave in Key Argo, Florida, with my neighbor who I've been getting to know and hanging out with during the uh, coronavirus here. And his name is Chuck. Chuck, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Chuck, how old are you now? And how old are you when you made your first million bucks? Well, currently I just turned 76. And I made my first million at about... 45. What were you doing that created that million bucks of personal worth? Well, after college, 1967 graduated, uh, my first two years I had 12 jobs working for whoever, just couldn't work for anybody. So I started a business for myself. Started in the garage, uh, had $4,000, and I started out manufacturing a product that I saw a need for. And it was a simple product to keep mobile homes, or as they call them now, manufactured houses from blowing away in hurricanes. Of course, in Florida, we've got lots of hurricanes. So that's what I started with. And from there, I grew from product to product to product until where we are where we are today. So who came up with the design for this product? I did. So you're an engineer by trade? No, uh, I started in architecture, went into the School of Business uh, and Economics, but I've always had a good flair for design, but I'm not an engineer. So walk me through how much did it cost to build the prototype of this device? How long did it take you? And how did you know that it was a good thing to put your resources behind? Well, at the time, it didn't take a lot to build because it was fairly simplistic, but it was innovative. It solved the problem and there wasn't really a solution for the problem. There was multiple solutions. So I went down the road of coming up with my own solution, made it in the garage, didn't cost me a lot, probably didn't cost me $100 to prototype it, and these units back then only sold for 6 or $7. And uh, knocked on some doors, got some interest uh, from the uh, developers of the manufactured housing communities, started making it in the garage, got a U-Haul trailer, hooked it up behind my Carmen Hill, and I made it in the garage and delivered to my customers. So you were doing the selling yourself? Selling and making. How do you sell? How did I sell? Yeah, what are your thoughts on selling? How do you sell? Well, when I sold, it was, it was a little easier back then because there wasn't a defined solution to how to tie down a manufactured home. Lots of solutions. Mine was quick, took less labor, cost less money, so that was basically the pitch. Cost less, does the job better, and, uh, and I can deliver to you when you want. So did you have a crazy high conversion rate to sales because the product was so good at fixing a problem? I did, which sort of led to uh, a production problem. I couldn't make enough in the garage. Okay, so you worked on increasing your manufacturing capability, which I think is better for another conversation because most people listening want to know how to sell more stuff and we'll get into operations Probably in another podcast, we can always do round two to talk about operations, but I want to stick to the growth of the business and scaling it up. So you had this one product, and how big did the business get off of just one product? The one product got to about $2 million. And it's, it was always my intent to diversify. Uh, first of all, I wasn't going to be satisfied with one product or the revenue off of one product. So what I did was I went from making mobile home anchors to boat anchors. 
but I designed the boat anchors around the current industry sizes, but I used the similar materials that I used for my mobile home anchors. So I had less cost of buying, uh, less initial startup cost. And eventually within probably three to four years became the leading player in boat anchors. And I was the leading player in mobile home anchors. So we went from mobile home anchors to boat anchors. And then from there, we continued on to, to add on products. So the boat anchor was made from the same materials you were sourcing for the mobile home titles. Much of it was the same. Example, for, for as long as uh, I can remember, boat anchors were purchased and sold by the pound. So you come up and say, I want a 13 pound anchor. I want a 10 pound anchor. I want an 18 pound anchor. Well, that's what the anchor weighed. So I found that the anchors did not work based upon the weight so much. It was based on the design. They were penetrating anchors. So I made size anchors. I call them pound size. So a 10 pound anchor actually weighs seven pounds, but it was designed in a way that it was stronger than the 10. The sections were stronger because the way we put different strengthening uh, sections into the material. So we had a real cost advantage. We had something to talk about that it was light but it still did the same job as far as holding power. So we changed it from a pound size or a pound weight to a size. So now people say, I want a number 18. I want a number 22. Well, it used to be 18 pounds, 22 pounds, but now those weights don't reference the weight of the anchor. They really reference the shape and size of the anchor. And that's what we started and they ended up being very successful. So you completely translated the value as to how the customer thought about anchors correct how'd you sell these anchors well the best way for us to sell was through distribution because in the marine industry it's it's basically it's all a three-step and uh and if you're going to get successful outside of your your backyard you really had to do it through distribution which is fine we would sell it to a distributor distributor sell it to a dealer dealer would sell it to the consumer so you're selling boat anchors building the business how many staff did you have at this time? It was primarily me, a young lady in the office, and then we had uh, production people. Just uh, They were uh, uh, direct production people, no uh, indirect. Okay, so then the business, I'm assuming, grew from these two products to more, and you began scaling up. How'd you do that? The, uh, the, the one thing I always believed in, which really, I think, uh, made the business grow through the years, and and took us through some tough times, 2008, 9-11. Uh, uh, those, are, those are times where the economies really dropped drastically, uh, even today with the virus. But what, what always made us successful is diversification. But not just going out and diversifying into products, but diversifying into products where you already had a customer base. Because you weren't introducing yourself to a customer, you're introducing a new product to the same customer, much easier. And the other thing was try to use not only the same raw materials in designing products to get into that pipeline of our existing customer base, but use the same CapEx. We don't want to have to introduce a product, go out buy new raw material, and go out buy new capital equipment to produce that product. So much of the time, we were knocking off products, designing them slightly different to use our materials, to use our CapEx, CapEx to make them look a little more manufacturing, and then that allowed us to continue to grow by purchasing more CapEx, more raw materials, more sizes became available as we expanded our product line, 
And of course, that just grew to more and more opportunities for different products that required same CapEx, same raw material. Let's dig in more. Something you said there was super important, where you talked about yourself as an innovator, but you said we would find products that we could essentially knock off and do better, which is something that throughout my career, my businesses have always tried to do repeatedly, see how big the market is and look at competition as an indicator of a successful market as opposed to something to be scared of. Can you talk about your views on that and how you did that as opposed to thinking like, hey, it always has to be about innovation. Sometimes it's about copying and selling better and making a better, cheaper product or maybe better, more expensive product. In the 50 years since I've started the business, uh, I currently have over 60 something patents on unique IP on products that were never in the market before. So put that in context to the seven or 8,000 products that we manufacture, which means that the, that the seven or 8,000 all had to come from taking existing ideas, either knocking them off because it went into a marketplace that we already had, and that's usually the least profitable, or looking at that product and redesigning it to do the same thing, only better, look better, be lesser to manufacture, lesser cost, and, uh, and there was a lot of products out there like that, that we took advantage of that. And that's the primary reason we grew so much. So it was really not a copycat, but we would take it and improve on it. But it wasn't a fully innovated new product. It was a category that existed. Category that existed, with the exception of like 40 or 50 different major product lines that we've done over the years that has its own IP. Where 40 or 50 times you would hit a big winner in an innovation new category or at least innovative enough to get IP around it and protect that brand line. Correct. Gotcha. What percentage of your revenue skewed towards the six to 7,000 things that you manufactured versus the things that uh, you essentially created, the 40 to 50 with IP? Probably 80, 20, uh, 80 on what we uh, re-engineered and 20 on uh, IP products. So profit-wise, if you look at nothing but profit, you're a much better manufacturer than you are a creator. Correct. And did you think that was the case when you started the business or you thought it would be completely different? Well, back then I was a consummate entrepreneur. I'd wake up every morning and wing it. Pretty much didn't have a clue. <laughs> Just going, you do what it, it took. But as you got it farther and farther in business and business became more complex uh, and farther and farther in the business cycles, you pretty much had to know what you're doing. You had to come in with a goal. You had to you know, pursue that goal. You had to keep your eye on. To me, it was always not what we could sell the product for, but understanding what the market was. The market generates the selling price, not the manufacturer, unless it's a whole new product with its own IP. But when you're basically redesigning an existing program and trying to make it better, the market still dictates the price. So you can't go and try to sell for double. You've really got to come in if you want an easy road, you try to sell the same or slightly less with a better product, and then it's, it's pretty much a, an easy uh, sell to get that program in with your existing distribution base. Yeah, it's something I believe very strongly that if you have a better product that you can make cheaper and sell cheaper, you're more likely to win if you're trying to convince someone to buy something that's more expensive but isn't apparently way better you're gonna have a hard time. It's very difficult. You agree? 
So as you're growing the business at this point, you've got the manufacturing arm, six to 7,000 products over time that you've essentially just improved and made better and sold. So you've got the creative arm and you've got the manufacturing arm. And obviously you're hiring people all the way through this. Hiring is one of, in my opinion, the most difficult skills to scale a business because a good hire, as I'm sure you're going to tell some stories, makes you a ton of money. A bad hire and you're fucked. What's your experience going with hiring and how do you advise people to approach this? Pretty much ditto what you said, except that if somebody's really talented, you can pretty much count on the fact that if they're talented and they have the tenacity to want to do better all the time, many times they go into business on their own and sometimes they compete against you. Did you try and keep them with better deals or did you let them go and know they were going to compete against you? I agree completely. I feel like the performance structure for super high performers who are really moving the needle on your business, it's essential that you are making deals that will allow them to hit their own goals within your organization or that they're gone very quickly. Yeah, I agree with that. We, uh, we made opportunities for uh, uh, stock sharing programs and, and those have kept most of the talented people. Some have still left and gone on their own because rather than having a, an opportunity to have maybe five or 10% of the business, they much wanted to have it all. So they would leave and, and go into competition which set up a new parameter of uh, goals for, for, for my company when that happened. Did you have any people that you still have now to which you've given stock participation or equity and they're still with you and you avoided them leaving to compete? Yes, I certainly did. How much did you give up to keep them? Well, in total, uh, I currently own the majority of the stock and I have divvied it up in a manner where I think there's about 60, per, about 40% of the stock is now divvied up with key people that have been there for a while and I believe will retire at the company. And they're structured so that they're getting paid on like a quarterly basis or they need to stay with the company till retirement to really get the big pot of gold for being there so long? Or what was your view and what's the structure on how to keep them motivated for the long term? We don't have distributions, never have had distributions. Uh, we'll do bonuses, but basically since everything is plowed back in, the opportunity is stay there when you're ready to retire or when you're ready to leave. That's when you make your pot. You make your pot by selling your shares back or how does that work? Sell the shares back. And we do it at a, at a, at a predetermined schedule so that uh, the fact that they're a minority shareholder doesn't mean that we can hold that against them and try to squeeze them down for a, you know, for a sell price or purchase price on their stock. So this is pretty interesting. I haven't, I really don't know that much about this style. So are you saying that like when they get these stock options, it's at a certain percentage multiple of uh, profit and then you agree to purchase back at a similar multiple or how does that work? Well, we predominantly try to use uh, EBITDAs. Yep. And uh, when I have a minority shareholder, what we'll do is because they're a minority shareholder, we'll reduce the value, the purchase value based upon the fact that a minority shareholder. And when we invest on an EBITDA value based upon an average of a couple of years. So when we go to buy that stock back, assuming they want to sell it, it will be on the same ratio of EBITDA to their stock ownership based upon the percentage of discount that we originally gave them on their entry level stock price. Okay. Have there been people that have not liked this structure? 
No, actually, probably only because I've offered to a handful. So you've only reserved this, obviously, for the people that actually really move the needle when it comes to profits of the business. That and people that I wanted to be a, a partner of the company. So a little self, selfish there. Is they're going to be a, a stockholder. I'm going to treat them totally fair. But it's somebody that I really would trust and want to have working for me for the long term. That's no conflict. So there's got to be it's got to be a good fit. And the people that I've done this with are good fits. So the company has been along around how long now? Fifty years. And how much time every week are you putting into the company now? Currently, I probably put in a little over half time. But my job is to is basically innovation uh, and new products, new product design, and that's all I'm focusing my attention on. Uh, obviously, I look at the numbers daily, weekly, monthly, annually, but I try to let the management run it. And if I see it's going in a direction I don't like. I'll make comments, but so far uh, they've done a good job. So do you have it set up as my business institutionalized? It had to set up a board of directors and there were job titles for years. We ran with just, you know, four partners and managers and that was kind of the only titles we had. How do you have it set up? Is it a traditional, like here's our CEO, here's our president, here's our COO, we have a board of directors or how do you structure it? A little looser than that, but we have all of those positions that we call chairman, president, uh, CFO, CEO. Uh, however, we do have a board of directors. Uh, we don't have a lot of formal meetings. We do basically an annual. It's just to formalize things and we, we do our budgets. Uh, but uh, because it's a tightly held company, uh, we probably should tighten it up. But as of now, we really haven't tightened it up to, to the point that, we, that we're going to have to. Did you ever look at alternative exits of the business, like an ESOP or a uh, full-out equity sale? Or no, and the reason why is uh, several of the partners or stockholders are relatives, two sons, and so uh, now when I'm gone, they can do whatever they want. But while I'm here, I want to see the business uh, prosper, and I, I would like to see the the opportunities for other family members or family members of those other partners that aren't direct family, to be able to have a place to come and, and, and do well. Have you had any family members where they've wanted to come into the business and you don't think they're good enough? No, no. The, the, the boys are doing well. I had two daughters that started, but they didn't last long. and They didn't last because it wasn't for them. They, they wanted to get into something more glitzy than manufacturing. So they got into fashion. Have you found it difficult to objectively evaluate family performance or not so much? Do you feel that you've done that pretty objectively? Oh, that's tough. That's a tough one. Uh, early on, I'd say uh, seven years ago, uh, it was difficult because I had two sons in the business. They were out of college for a few years each. And in their minds, they weren't working for the company. They were working for Dave. And there's a difference in that relationship. And so I hired a president and his sole job besides running the company was to take my sons under his wing, under their, under his wings and to be able to be their boss without them coming to me. Because it was always, always an argument with me. I'm just being dad. But the president was the boss, but he said there was no arguments. When I said it, there was always a question because that's what kids did at the time. They just questioned everything that dad said. So that really helped dramatically was to have a go-between that really nurtured both boys 
to get them on stream within a company that had a hierarchy and, and, they, and had rules to basically uh, abide by. And that, that made all the difference in the world for me. What were some of those rules? Well, number one, if you're told to do something, you had to do it. You had to be responsible for, you had to, you had to, you had to commit to timelines. You had, to, uh, if, if, if the president said, I want you to work all weekend, he would get it. If I would say, Dad, uh, if I said, son, I want you to work all weekend, we gotta get this project out, they would have some excuse for, I'm going to a bachelor party or this, that, or the other, I can't do it. And me being a softie, I said, oh, okay, we'll put it off. That never happened. The president said it had to be done, it had to be done. How much better do you think their development has been under an objective president as opposed to if you had tried to teach them yourself? Yeah, night and day, I, I don't know how to quantify that, but I can tell you it was, uh, it was probably one of the best decisions ever made. Do you think you could say it was as black and white as success and failure? Well, I won't say we would have failed. I mean them. Them. Uh, yeah, I might have killed one of them if they stayed on. <laughs> <laughs> so I could have been a failure. Yeah, I'm obviously trying to go so deep here because a lot of people work with family members. They, they try and hire family members. Um, or even friends, which is another situation where it's very difficult to remain objective because there's a pre-existing relationship that you already have set up as far as a way that you interact. Did you ever hire friends? Friends? Friends. Friends are difficult. Uh, I have, and it really hasn't for the most part worked out. Uh, you know, the interesting thing we're talking about, about the decision I made to bring a president in, I'll, I'll never forget the time that I said, this is it, I gotta do something different. My one son was very, very bright. They're both bright, but he's terrific at uh, understanding manufacturing. And, and he comes up to me one day and said, you know, if you would just walk away, I can run this company twice as good as you can. And the problem was he had so much self-confidence, but he didn't have the common sense to run the business. And when I put somebody else in front of him to be his boss, that never came up. And he understood there was a difference. There's a difference between working for somebody and working for a family member. You can tell them that, you can express your confidence, but with somebody else that's really making you toe the line, your boss, in effect, I wasn't their boss, but that, uh, that conversation never came up. And he, he, he matured, both of them did. They, uh, uh, it took them uh, probably three or four years, but they're totally different people right now. And I don't need to supervise them. They're doing a wonderful job, but that was because they worked for somebody other than their father. What do you think is the best way for someone that wants to become an owner of a large multi-million dollar business to learn the skills that they need? What's the best way to do it? First thing I would do, if you, for example, if you want to acquire a business that, that, that took a lot of tribal knowledge, the first thing you don't do is, is get rid of the manager. You, know, you keep them there, even if you don't like them, until you get all of, until you get a thorough understanding of how that company runs and who it takes to run it. Yeah, I agree completely. Until you can do it the same as the people that are having success, there's no, you have no reason and no right to try and do it your way. I tried that earlier in my career and it was a, a failure. So this is working. Let's do it their way first. One of the things my partner taught me. Now, if you want to try and do weird stuff, okay, go for it. But the baseline is the existing success. Right. 
Okay, so what if someone doesn't have this option of buying an existing business with a good management or even bad management team intact? Their only option is starting something. Much more difficult today than it was 50 years ago. That I can tell you. So there's a lot of people that would completely disagree with that. So why do you think that? I'm talking about my business manufacturing. Now, if you've got a great idea, it depends. What are you gonna manufacture? Are you gonna manufacture without innovation? Or are you gonna manufacture with, with innovation? If you innovate a product and you want to be the manufacturer and the product has, is, has great market appeal, that's an easier entry. But don't forget, when I got into business, I was manufacturing Me Too products, just trying to do it better. And because of the competitive nature today, particularly with the offshoring, I find today as compared to 50 years ago when there wasn't an internet, today all you need to do is take a picture of your product send it to somebody overseas and they'll have it knocked off so quick if there's no IP or barriers to entry and then it's coming directly into your customers. So that didn't, that didn't exist back then. Now, many, many products are very successful today, but a lot of them have great IP, IP great margins, and you don't have to manufacture it yourself. You can basically outsource. So I'm sure you're very familiar with now on Amazon, you have all these businesses and a lot of it is young kids where they never even see the product. All they're doing is internet marketing. They send the photos you sent to China, the product gets made, they put it on Amazon, it gets drop shipped. They've never even taken inventory of anything, but the ability to manufacture in the US must be very difficult when this business can be done without ever having any manufacturing or any inventory. Or any upfront capital equipment costs. So no, I, I totally agree. That's why I say it's much more, it's much more difficult today as a manufacturer, but I'm just saying manufacturing. I'm not saying selling a new product. Yep, I should so have that. US-based manufacturer. Now I think there's great opportunity for those companies that have, that have a, uh, all of the resources that, that we do. We, have, we get into products today that require higher barriers of entry with the capital equipment required to manufacture. So we look at improving products. We look at taking an existing product that is not manufactured in a method that requires a lot of capital equipment. A lot of, a lot of small products are fabricated. In other words, you take parts and pieces, you put them together, and it looks like it was put together. But there's not enough market value to pay for a million dollars in CapEx or a couple of million to make the product really refined looking. But because we do so many products and the CapEx is so multi, is so versatile, so multifaceted. We look at products that we can put on that equipment, make it look manufactured, much more manufactured, much cheaper to produce. They're, they may not be million dollar products, but I'll take a thousand products any day with a hundred thousand dollar year marketplace and 50% margin. Now, one of those products on its own would never pay for a million dollar machine, but the way we go about doing it, it is a, it's a great business opportunity to go out there and sort of reinvent the wheel make it better, make it look better, make it cheaper. And it's a win-win customers as well as the company. Who do you end up selling those products to and how? We uh, currently do everything through uh, uh, two-step. We, we sell a lot through Amazon, uh, but you know, they're, they're the, uh, they're the uh, uh, sales agent in effect. But we, our customers uh, include people like Home Depot, uh, Lowe's, Walmart, some of the big ones. United Technologies, uh, JPL Jet Propulsion Laboratories, which is NASA. We've even sold people like 
Boeing, uh, Ferrari, uh, some very high tech things that we've done. But so obviously there's a lot of diversification. Obviously a lot of these products don't have tremendous amount of annual revenue. They just have nice margins and they use the high CapEx that we have to manufacture those products. So it's another example, like the same thing you did earlier in your career when you sold the boat anchors that were almost the same material. Now you're just repurposing your CapEx for additional profits. Exactly. Yeah. We'll, we'll go in and we will go to large trade shows that sell the types of equipment that we use. And we will buy equipment and they'll ask us, what are we going to use this on? We don't have a product. We're looking at the capability of the product and what it can do with our types of materials within our market. And then we go out and create the opportunities by re-engineering or totally designing new products off that equipment. Been very successful. But you still have to have an ability to innovate, to do that. And we're great at innovating and taking existing products and making them better. Yeah, and I think it's a really important lesson. One of the things in one of the businesses that I own here in Miami, partner in a restaurant chain called Diced, and they sell chicken bowls. And now with Uber Eats, they've started switching to doing the same thing you're talking about, where they're actually creating a second restaurant, a virtual one, and it's all the same ingredients, but instead of making a chicken bowl, it's a chicken taco with a different branding, different name, and it's only on Uber Eats or DoorDash or other services. So they're just repositioning the kitchen a little bit because they already paid to have this kitchen in real estate, and they take that, and all of a sudden, there's two, maybe even a third business with the same ingredients, different names, just for the to-go channel. So I think it's a really, really good lesson. It's not one that I've thought about too often, but for, for people that have a business, they're wondering about starting a second one or how to get more profit, it's definitely worth examining what equipment and structures have you used your money to create or build or buy and how can you continue to use them to make additional products or services that you can sell without spending more money on more equipment. Agreed. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's for us, it's a, it's an age old easy formula and it's allowed us to grow and grow and also take on more and more opportunities. Yeah. Are they, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think it's probably one of the most important concepts we hit upon in here because, uh, one of the biggest things that people say about growing their business or starting a business is always, I'm sure you've heard it 9 million times, like, I don't have the money for that, but take what you've already invested and figure out a way to monetize it even more. Yeah, a perfect example is uh, years ago, probably 20 years ago, we had a gentleman show up and he said, look, he said, I know your company, I know about you. And if you can manufacture this product, just do it better. The current company that manufactures it, can't deliver on time, can't do this, doesn't honor warranty. So we looked at it. We said, we like the idea. It was about a $1,500 product. We said, but it's made all wrong. It's just, it, looks, it just looks like it came out of a, a backyard you know, cut and weld shop. So we put manufactured designs by using higher tech manufacturing equipment. We became the leader and we grew a market that wasn't there because we made something look so good for the value the perceived value, and we sold them to contractors, basically, and mainly roofing contractors. And now we're the leader, and we're doing thousands of these units a year, and they sell for a lot of money. And it's a very high margin item. We don't have any, any IP. It's not a huge market where we're going to get the really big boys interested, but it generates a lot of zeros, a lot of revenue, and we do a great job in it. Yeah, it's awesome. What other advice would you give to 
a startup entrepreneur or someone with their business that is going, but it's not at the level that they want it? What's the best growth tip that you have? Well, I'm sort of, I've always been focused on the manufacturing side, so I really can't give you an opinion on to server site business and so forth. But if you're going to get into any kind of business, particularly in my line, the, the key thing is besides the obvious, like good people, obviously that's an important resource, but your customer, knowing the market, knowing the price and service and acting like you care. And more important, you got to make your employees act like they care. So many times we picked up business simply because the other company is not knocking on the door. The other company is not returning the phone call. Or if you get a phone call late Friday, hey, I got to have it out. I'm going to be shut down Monday. You stay late and you get it out. Too many times people say, look, I'm sorry, it's 4.30. Too late to do that. No, that's what you instill into your people and you'll grow your business. Yeah, I agree 100%. At some point, you simply have to put in the work that other people won't put in. It's extremely important. But, but that's management. Yeah. Chuck, I want to thank you for coming on the show. For the listeners, heard old school manufacturing tycoon who has created a multi-million dollar business, now only working half-time on that business with an efficient management structure, created over 60 patents and additional seven to 8,000 products that have been adapted, knocked off, improved, however you want to call it. Tremendous business. A lot of lessons in here to learn. My favorite is probably the repurposing of capital X expenditures of your business, or also you can look at that as a repurposing of your existing skills. What skills have you learned over the years that you've spent your time, your money, investing in yourself? What else can you do with those same skills to generate a second income stream? So this has been Multimillionaire Secrets in 30 minutes and talk to you soon.